Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Light Unto My Path podcast. I'm your host, Howard Sides. Uh, today, we're continuing our study of the book of Revelation in chapter 17. And we're kind of right in the middle of a thought here. Uh, again, we're setting up the historical background. His, I should say historical and biblical background of what, what's going on here in chapter 17. And of course, our key for this here is in uh, verse 5 and, and basically verse 6 when it says, And upon her forehead was a name written, Mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and abominations of the earth. And I saw the woman drunken with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, I wondered with great admiration. Now, that verse 5 there, all those titles that are given are in capital letters, which we talked about last week a little bit. And, and it gives that emphasis of, of who it's talking about and just how defiant this system is uh, against what God represents. And, and verse 6 gives you the evidence that it is against God by saying that she's drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs. So this system is definitely anti-God. All right. <clears throat> so last week we had started uh, talking of a little bit of the history of the, tying the Babylonian mystical religion into what's going on with, with today. And we were talking about the fish symbol. Uh, or, you know, of course, we had started talking about some of the sim symbology and uh, icons used today, and we've been talking about this fish symbol and how it ties into what's going on today. And and we had started getting into, uh, unfortunately, how Starbucks has manipulated this thing into their company logo and what they stand for and what it represents. And, and we had talked about the original logo of the company, which uh, was started at the initiation of the company in 1971. Uh, to 1987, and again, this is all public record. I mean, you can look it right up and, and see what it's tied to and what they represent, what they stand for. Uh, so today, we're going to pick up the study with their second logo and talk about it a little bit. And and listen again, I'm not here to attack Starbucks. I mean, they serve coffee. What's wrong with that? But if they just stuck with that, I'd have no problem with it. But I'm just trying to open your eyes to look around and see some of these things that are out there in this world today and and what they're portraying. And and it's obvious to me from, from what the designer of the original logo stated that where he got the picture from, uh, they're covering something up. I'm not trying to expose them or, or anything like that nature, but, I mean, it, it's out there. Look it up and study it for yourself. The information's there. So, again, the second logo. Uh, which was used from 1987 to 1992. Now, the second logo, of course, was introduced in 1987, and the green color was added in the band around the image in the middle where it says Starbucks Coffee. Uh, they removed the words tea and spices, uh, obviously since coffee kind of was the product that took over and dominated the market. That's what they wanted to focus on. That's smart of them. I, I agree with that. Uh I, I really can't even tell you if you can actually even get tea uh, at a Starbucks. I, I think they probably do have some types of tea, hot tea, that sort of thing. But anyway, coffee is their mantra. That's what they're known for. Now, the, the key here is in the center, the mermaid design. 
It was altered uh, where the hair now covered the exposed breast, but the navel was still visible. And you think, oh, whoop de doo You know, it would see people's navel all over the place. Listen, I want you to go back and look at the original um, logo. And it may be kind of hidden because it's so small. But here we have a completely naked woman. And I, I know a lot of people don't have a problem with that, right? I'm exposed breast. You can just about see uh, the vagina at the bottom. That, But th that picture is a copy again of... <laughs> of, of a, a work of art by J.E. Serlo's Dictionary of Symbols. And it is an image of Mel Melusine or Melusine, the French demon goddess. And that pretty much shows everything. And it goes back to this Dagon is half fish, half human. So here it is as a female body and the bottom half is that of a fish. They've got the tail like a mermaid. And so that's what we're talking about. And it's obvious somebody was complaining or somebody made mention of it uh, because in this design, they do cover it up. They use the hair of this mermaid to cover the breast and, and you see the uh, navel at the bottom. But notice at the bottom of the emblem, the two tails come up around the side. And what is on her head? She's wearing a crown with what? The star on the top. The star. Remember that ties right into Nimrod. We talked about that. And you think, well, not all stars tie into it. It does on a crown when the image is a picture that goes directly back to Babylonian uh, mystic religion. It is a direct connection. You can't deny it. Okay, uh, the third logo. Uh, 1992 is introduced uh, and used to uh, 2011. Now, the Starbucks lettering is bolder, and the two stars are added on each side. <clears throat> Well, actually, the last logo had to start. I don't know why I said it, but I think they're bigger. Uh, and the image of the mermaid has been enlarged, removing the exposed navel. And again, uh, remember, they're really hardcore set on uh, this Lilith movement, Lilith Fair movement, which is women's rights and all that. Uh, so they don't want to portray a naked woman. They want to give it the best looking thing. So they cover the navel. They cover the breasts. Uh, so all you see now is the face of this mermaid, her hair flowing down the side, and the two tails coming up the side, uh, and again, that crown with the star. They're not going to drop that. That's, that's just part of it. Uh, the final, uh, the fourth logo, <clears throat> uh, was introduced in 2011, still being used today, uh, and it was to celebrate their 40th anniversary of the company. Now, the logo was simplified with the removal of the surrounding border. Uh, I mean, and let's face it, this emblem is like worldwide everybody knows it so you don't really have to put starbucks coffee on it you know what that mermaid with a crown with a star on it with the fishtails represents so they removed all that um and uh the uh emblem itself on the inside uh the black background was changed to green and so it kind of makes it a little more visible of course it's that standard color but the green is a little bit lighter Okay, all right, enough picking on Starbucks. Let's put that to the side, okay? And you think, all right, enough of that. Well, let's go on to others. I mean, they're all over the place. Uh, other company logos with mystical meanings. Uh, Mitsubishi and Mercedes-Benz logo is based off the Druid and Celtic uh, Triquetra. Yeah, Triquetra, used in pagan rituals. The Triquetra 
That's T-R-I-Q-U-E-T-R-A. That uh, is a, <laughs> I'd explain it to you, then you may just have to look it up, but it's, it's a round circle, okay? And then it's got three points coming out, which basically are rounded like, like a leaf, I guess you'd say. There's two coming out of the center of the circle down to the left and the right descending at an angle, and then one going straight up the middle. That was a pagan ritual symbol. Uh, Texaco uses a pentagram in the background. <laughs> right. Shell, the use of a seashell seems harmless, uh, but its original use was a symbol for Venus and Aphrodite, who were the goddesses of prosperity, regeneration, and fertility. Uh, Sunoco's diamond-shaped billboards. The diamonds represented the solar mystery in the Babylonian mystery cult. The torch represented in Amico the Statue of Liberty and the U.S. dime. The torch is a reference to Prometheus, who stole fire from Zeus and gave it to mankind, representing illumination. Uh, the gulf signs have a solar halo background. This represents the Egyptian sun god, Ra. Mobile uses a flying horse as their symbol, which represents the Greek god Pegasus, which stands for man's heightened power of natural resources. Reader's Digest and TriStar which is a movie production company, also used the Pegasus. The pentagram, one of the most prolific magical symbols in the world, is and has been used by the architect of Washington, D.C., the U.S. military headquarters. I mean, it's named the Pentagon, come on. In our U.S. flag stars and coat of arms, as well as flags of Pakistan, Chile, Ghana, New Zealand, Morocco, Ethiopia, China, the European Unity, uh, the EU for short, uh, the Philippines, Singapore, Turkey, Somalia, Bosnia-Herzegovina, North Korea, Vietnam, Panama, Grenada, Algeria, Cape Verde, uh, Brazil. Also used by corporations such as Walmart, Sirius, OnStar, Macy's, and Converse. It's out there everywhere. It's tied into almost everything we do or everything we use, or everything we see. And that's my point. I'm not picking on any of these companies by any means. Uh, Lord knows, I, I'm a big fan of Walmart. My wife hates to take me in Walmart. But I'm just saying that it's, it, it's not by any stretch of the imagination how this Babylonian mystery religion infected uh, religions of today because it's everywhere. It's in everything we use, everything we do, everything we see almost. Uh, that, that's my point, okay? All right, moving on. Now, after the accounts in Genesis chapter 11, Babylon disappears from Scripture until chapter 14. Now, this is the true tale of two cities, you know, the reference to uh, the classical book by Charles Dickens. Is that right? Who wrote Tale of Two Cities? Got the book over here. Yeah, yeah. Charles Dickens, The Tale of Two Cities. I'm looking right at it. Okay, I got it right. I guessed right. Wow. Imagine that. Uh, the Tale of Two Cities. Sodom and Gomorrah are attacked and defeated by a confederation of kings in verses 1 through 11. Genesis chapter 14, verses 1 through 11. Now, two significant things to note. First, Sodom and Gomorrah were located in the land of Canaan, or Palestine, which is part of the land God had promised to Abraham in his covenant with him in Genesis chapter 12, verse 1, recorded right after the account of the Tower of Babel. Second, 
In the beginning of the chapter, the kings are listed by name and countries. Historically, the leader of this group is recognized as Chedorlaomer, king of Elam. Chedorlaomer. Historically, he's listed as the leader. But note who Moses mentions first. Amraphel, king of Shinar. Does that name sound familiar? Shinar, the plains of Shinar, as in the land of Babylonia? This indicates who God saw as the real leader of this confederation. It's not who has the most troops. It's not who has, it's who has the most power, I guess you'd say. Now, as a result of this defeat, the citizens are taken hostage, among who is Lot, Abraham's nephew. Now, upon hearing word of this, Abraham sets out and defeats this confederation and saves everyone, including Lot. Upon his return, Abraham is visited by a man named Melchizedek, who is king of Salem, which later came to be known as Jerusalem. Jerusalem. Melchizedek means king of righteousness, and in the Bible, he is a type of Christ. That's in Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 1. It mentions him by name. So, historically, we see the rise of the ungodly city, Shinar, or Babylon, which had its beginnings not only in rebellion against God, but in an attempt to be like God. We see this city intruding on the land which God had promised to Abraham, through whom the Messiah would come. Brought into this narrative is this city of Salem, later be, to be called Jerusalem, with a king who is a type of Christ. Right after this, we see God himself appearing to Abraham to reinforce his covenant with Abraham with specific boundaries given in connection with the land of promise and victory over the inhabitants of the land. And you can read about that, Genesis chapter 15, verse 1, and then later on, verses 18 through 21, same chapter. Babylon then disappears from the record until we reach the book of Isaiah in chapters 36 and 37. Now here, Hezekiah, who is one of my personal favorite characters of the Bible, uh, is king of Judah and faces an invasion by King uh, Sincarib, king of Assyria. Hezekiah reads the terms of surrender because uh, basically what happens, Sincarib comes and surrounds the city. Basically a, a siege. Okay, Not letting anybody in, not letting anybody out. And he offers this letter of surrender to Hezekiah. So Hezekiah, Hezekiah when he reads the terms of surrender, uh, he turns the matter over to God. Prays about it. And then God says, don't worry about it. I'm going to take care of it. And it's one of my favorite accounts in the Bible. I talk about it quite a lot. Uh, actually, you know what? Let's, let's just take the time and look in the book of Isaiah. And I'm, I'm going to read this because most of you don't know what I'm talking about, I'm pretty sure unless you're a really good scholar or student of the Bible. Isaiah chapter uh, 37. Okay, so, and, and, and I'm just giving you the overall picture here, but listen, Hezekiah and the citizens of Jerusalem, I mean, they're facing dire consequences here. They, they can't get in, they can't get out, the food's running out. Um, they're in a bad situation. And, King Sincarib is out there with his troops and, and the commander of his army out there mocking him. And Hezekiah says, you know what? I got to turn this over to God. It ain't like I've got a choice anyway. 
but he does it right. He turns it over to God. <laughs> and the Lord responds and says, hey, I'm going to take care of it. Don't you worry about it. Okay? And some of the most astounding verses in the Bible, if you read between the lines, I mean, look at what is said here. All right? I Isaiah chapter 37 and verse 36. It says, Then the angel of the Lord went forth and smote in the camp of the Assyrians a hundred and fourscore and five thousand. And when they arose early in the morning, behold, they were all dead corpses. So Sincarid, king of Assyria, departed and went and returned and dwelt in Nineveh. And it came to pass, as he was worshiping in the house of Nirach, his god, Nisroch, his god, that Adramelech and Sherezer, his sons, smote him with the sword, and they escaped into the land of Armenia, and Esar had on his son reigned in his stead. Okay? Now listen, you really have to go back and read the whole story to get the caption of, of what's going on here. But my thing here is in verse 36. Look, look at what it says. The angel of the Lord went forth and smote in the camp of the Assyrians a hundred and fourscore and five thousand. You know how many that is? That's a hundred and eighty-five thousand troops. But it's not that he just killed them. There's a phrase used here that's strange. And the minute I read it, I knew there was something about it that just stuck out. It says, and they arose early in the morning, behold, and they were all dead corpses. Dead corpses. Now think about that a minute. If they're dead, obviously they're a corpse. But th this is like a double uh, identification of what's going on here. They're not just corpses, but they're dead corpses. That means they're doubly dead. They're dead two times. And of course, I think that has reference to this physical birth and the spiritual birth because they attacked his people. And I mean, that, that was, they crossed the line. They crossed the line. And then of course, when the king left and he went back, what happened, uh, his own kids end up killing him. And then later on, one of his other sons takes over his place, but dead corpses. <laughs> you see, listen, that, that's just a strange uh, thing in the Bible there. And you'd never know it. Look, reading over that, if you're reading it fast, if you don't stop and think about it a minute, a dead corpse. They were double dead. I mean, which is significant. But then again, uh, 185, listen, things when, when Hezekiah and the, and the citizens of Jerusalem, when they went to bed that night, think, think, things were dire. Uh, it was dangerous. Uh, there, there was no way out. They had no way to go. And doesn't that remind you of, of the uh, uh, Israelites when they had left, fled Egypt, and, and they were crossing this plain uh, or crossing this region, they'd come to the Red Sea, uh, and they hear this, rumble behind them and they think it's a storm but then they realize this is the egyptian army coming down us and and there's actually a sermon i, I stuck between a rock and a hard place really uh they couldn't go to the left they couldn't go to the right and they certainly couldn't go forward they were trapped they had no way of getting out and moses said god what are we going to do and god said listen this is what you're going to do you're going to stand still and see the salvation of the lord <laughs> stand still the hardest Thing for a person to do. We got to have our fingers in it. We got to be involved. It's hard for us to stand still and let God handle it. Here, they're trapped in the city. They can't do anything. They have no chance. Uh, uh, they, they can do nothing. God had to handle it for them, and he did handle it. Okay, uh, so um, we have this account 
here of these dead corpses. But Hezekiah later on has a lapse of faith in chapter 39, uh, where he reveals his treasure house uh, to Merodach Baladon, son of Baladon, king of Babylon. Here we go again. Babylon. Isaiah then reveals judgment from God that says all his treasures would end up in Babylon and his sons would become eunuchs in Babylon's courts. A eunuch, if you do not know what that means, that's a castrated male. Yes, castrated male. Eunuchs were captive royalty and they were used to protect basically uh, a king's harem. Well, obviously you're going to have them around all them pretty girls. You don't want them you know what I'm saying? So that's why they did that. Oh, man. Okay. Boy, barbaric things going on here. And it also prevented offspring from rising up and rebelling as well. Now, this was critical because Hezekiah's offspring represented the Davidic kingdom and the hereditary line of the Messiah. Now, Babylon continued to be the seed of Satan until the fall of the Babylonian and Medo-Persian empires to Greece under the command of Alexander the Great. Then Satan shifted uh, his capital to a city called Pergamos in Asia Minor. And we've already talked about that in the letters to the seven churches, the one to Pergamos there where God uh, or Christ makes reference to the seat of Satan. Uh, in chapter 2 and verse 13, it says, I know thy works and where thou dwellest, even where Satan's seat is. Now, the history behind that, Adelus III, the king of Pergamos, had obtained the title of pontiff from the Babylonian mystery religion's high priests. When Attalus, the pontiff, and the king of Pergamos died in 133 BC, he bequeathed the headship of the Babylonian priesthood to Rome. The word pontiff means bridge maker, which means between God and man. What we call uh the advocate. Uh, the pontiff is a direct imitation and a flat-out mockery of what Christ actually is. They're basically saying, as the pontiff, the pope of the Roman Catholic Church is Christ. That's what they're saying as the bridge maker. That's what Christ is. Okay, continuing their history. When the Etruscans came to Italy from Lydia, which is the region of Pergamos, they brought with them the Babylonian religion and rites. They set up a pontiff who was head of the priesthood there. Later, the Romans accepted this pontiff as their civil ruler. In 74 BC, Julius Caesar was made pontiff of the Etruscan order, E-T-R. U-S-C-A-N. Julius Caesar became the pontiff. The very next year, he was made supreme pontiff of the Babylonian order, thus becoming the heir to the rights and titles of Attalus, the pontiff Pergamos, who had made Rome his heir by will. Caesar began wearing a golden crown with the inscription Pontifex Maximus, which means the greatest of all bridge makers. Thus, the first Roman emperor became the head of the Babylonian priesthood, and Rome became the successor of Babylon. Today, the quote-unquote reigning pope bears the same title and calls himself the sovereign pontiff 
of the College of Pontiffs and the successor of Peter. However, the truth is that he is the direct successor of the Babylonian high priests. The connections between the Babylonian mystery cult and Roman Catholicism. More of them. Saramis, or Cybele, the wife of Nimrod, developed this religious system of a celibate priesthood, which was answerable to her and the high priest, who was known by the title of Pontiff, or Pontifex Maximus, which means Chief Bridge Maker. Sound familiar? <laughs> it's a title that we thought that Caesar came up with. No, no, he copied it. Nimrod, of course, was supposedly this bridge between this life and the life to come. Nimrod was also called Dagon. If you remember that, we just talked about it in the last uh, podcast. The fish god, as he had the power to regenerate life through the sea. Uh, if you look up, if you Google Dagon in Mesopotamian sculpture, you'll see the representation here of, of a man wearing a fish costume with this head of the mouth of the fish sticking straight up. And, and, and you'll see where that comes into play later on. Now, Semiramis incorporated an unmarried and celibate priesthood, which would be more devoted to her and to her husband. The regular priests wore black robes, which represented the colors of the mystical cult. Remember again, everything that happens for evil usually is in the dark, right? Uh, Nimrod had a council of, ironically, 12 priests to assist him in the temporal and political affairs of the empire. They were called, I kid you not, cardinals and wore, I kid you not, Red robes. A distinguishing mark of the priests of Nimrod was to have the crown of their head shaved, which the edges were allowed to remain in the shape of a ring, in honor of Nimrod, who was also worshipped as the sun god. This is exactly what the monks do. <laughs> Remember, they shave that flat, you know, the part in the back, and they leave that ring of hair? That's what it is. God actually, quote-unquote, covers this in Leviticus 19.27, where he says, Ye shall not round the corners of your heads, neither shalt thou mar the corners of thy beard. How more plain can you be than that? He's flat out telling you, you're not to shave the crown of your head. Uh, also in Leviticus 21 and verse 5, they shall not make baldness upon their head, neither shall they shave off the corner of their beard, nor make any cuttings in their flesh. Uh, now I haven't really looked into what that shaving off the corner of their beard is, but I'm assuming what that means is like a goatee. I don't know, but shaving off the corner of your beard, cutting off the top part and leaving the bottom, it, it was a recognition thing. That's what it's about. Uh, it's, uh, <laughs> <laughs> and cutting their flesh. Hey, we have people today, especially like in the NBA, um, college basketball, um, the, in the NFL, college football, uh, and they scrape these, instead of getting a tattoo, they're cutting their flesh. The Bible clearly, and God specifically says not to do that. Why? Because it ties into this Babylonian mystery religion. It's not something new. 
Uh, Semiramis also developed a system of female devotees known as Vestal Virgins, later known by the Chaldean word Nun, N-U-N, Nun, which means daughters of Nimrod. Their duty in service to their god Nimrod was to sexually serve the unmarried priests since these men were not allowed to marry and have wives. <laughs> All right. Yeah. This was instructed, basically ordered, as a form of worship to their god. And if you go back and look at all, all of these pagan religious systems, they've all got this sexual thing in there somewhere. They all have a temple, like Diana. And all, they have these female priestesses, and that's what their job was. They were to be um, harlots, the sexual slaves. Um, so the reason for this was it kept the priests satisfied and happy and was a mild attempt at keeping them from turning homosexual. Now, history records the horrors of countless abortions which arose from this immoral system as countless infant skeletal remains have been found buried near convents, which are nun housings, and monasteries. And, and that's uh, talked about in Ralph Woodrow's book, The Babylon Mystery Religion, pages 116 and 117. Many were also found in underground tunnels between convents and monasteries in Spain and Rome. The tunnels allowed hidden access to each other. Uh, there's an event called the Red Terror uh, in Spain, and it actually is called Ter Terror Rojo, <laughs> Terror of Red. Various acts of violence committed from 1934 to the end of the Spanish Civil War in 1939. An estimated, again estimated, 38,000 to 172,000 killed, including 6,832 Catholic clergy in the beginning stages, not over the whole entire, the beginning stages. 58 Catholic churches were burned to the ground. Now, secular history teaches that this revolt was the response to an oppressive government taking too much control. However, when the Spanish people discovered these graves and realized what was going on, that these priests were having sex with these nuns and that these nuns were getting pregnant and that they were having abortions and that they were burying these abortions in the grounds. They turned as an angry mob and started burning Catholic churches to the ground and killing the priests. In response, the government stepped in <laughs> and also started reigning in the powers of the Catholic Church, upon which the Catholic Church motivated the Spanish military to attack the government in a coup which broke out into civil war. Now, by the way, it was made customary for all women to serve as prostitutes in the temples for a full week before getting married. Every woman in the Babylonian Empire had to serve for a full week in this temple before getting married. Um... I, okay, I'm just going to leave that alone. Let you imagine what, what that represents. Or Anyway. Nevertheless, forbidding to marry resulted in rampant homosexuality among the priests, and the public allowed this to continue, to keep the priests away from their wives and daughters. They're like, hey, if they're going to turn into homosexuals, at least they'll leave my wives and my daughters alone. Well, wait a minute. 
Why would they be worried about their wives and their daughters? Maybe it's because when their wives and their daughters would go to confession, these priests were taking advantage of them and sexually exploiting them. That's why they were married. Now, the problem with a celibate, unmarried priesthood of males hearing the intimate and private sexual confessions of married and single women eventually would lead to trouble. It's obvious, and it did. A former Catholic priest, Father Chiniqui, C-H-I-N-I-Q-U-I, tells in his book, The Priest, The Woman, and Confessional, that if married men and fathers knew the intimate questions that were asked of the wives and their daughters in the confessional booths, they would run the priests out of town. Samirimus <clears throat> claimed her mystery religion possessed the highest wisdom and revealed divine secrets. Only members of this cult would be the ones to receive salvation to heaven after completing a series of religious works, beginning with baptism by a Babylonian priest and ending with prayers for the dead called sacraments. Sacraments. Samirimus taught that devotees did not immediately enter heaven upon death, but went to an intermediate place known as purgatory. Purgatory. This is all from... Listen, this shows you this woman was highly intelligent. I mean, think about it. She alone come up with this whole entire system and it's still in place today. Thousands of years later, it's copied and used under different names. Some of them, the very names are copied. Sacraments, indulgences, uh, divine secrets, all of that stuff is still the same. <laughs> Purgatory. Now, this made sure the family remained devoted and faithful to the Babylonian priesthood to ensure their loved one moved on to heaven. Property and money could be donated to the priesthood to help get the loved one out of purgatory sooner. This was later known and, and called as indulgences. Now, the priests held control over the devotees because Samirimus compelled the people to confess their sins to the priests for at least one year and to perform penance according to the degree of the sin committed. Sins were categorized by their seriousness as either mortal or venial. The true purpose was to keep tabs on any rebellion or uprising in the empire. <laughs> this was effective because people were compelled to confess every single sin, moral or ethical, to the priest. Omission of any sin could result in forfeit of salvation. When the Babylonian mystery religion moved to Egypt, these priests imprinted the initials of Nimrod, Semiramis, and Tammuz on their wafer cakes, which were eaten in a mass ceremony as the priest placed the wafer on the tongue of each participant. In the Egyptian language, Nimrod, Semiramis, and Tammuz were known as Seb, Isis, and Horus, thus the initials I-H-S were imprinted on the wafer cakes. Many, and let me repeat that, many Christian, not just Catholic, but Christian churches still have this religious symbol of IHS on their church furniture 
and have no idea what it stands for. Look in your church and see if you see it. Again, it, it's, it's not apostasy in the sense that they don't know. That's ignorance. But once they find out the truth, <laughs> yeah, they might get rid of it. They should get rid of it. That symbol, there's nothing wrong with the furniture. It's the symbol and what it represents. you got to know the truth, right? In Egypt, this mother-child worship involved Iris, uh, I mean Isis and Horus. In Greece, it became Aphrodite and Eros. In Rome, this pair were worshipped as Venus and Cupid. Devotees of this Babylonian mystery religion would make the mark of a T with their hand across their chest in honor of Tammuz, later called genuflecting. Genuflecting. Tammuz and the people worshiping him is even mentioned in the Bible. Ezekiel chapter 8, verses 13 through 16. He said also unto me, Turn thee yet again, and thou shalt see greater abominations that they do. Then he brought me to the door of the gate of the Lord's house, which was toward the north. And behold, there sat women weeping for Tammuz. Then said he unto me, Hast thou seen this, O son of man? Turn thee yet again, and thou shalt see greater abominations than these. And he brought me into the inner court of the Lord's house. And behold, at the door of the temple of the Lord, between the porch and the altar, were about five and twenty men with their backs toward the temple of the Lord and their faces toward the east. And they worshiped the sun toward the east. What prominent religion today worships toward the east? Islam. H.L. Wilmington, in his book, The King is Coming, page 76, tells how this Babylon mystery religion spread through the world and became known as Baal worship. Baal worship. Okay, now, uh, let's get into um, a couple of questions about um, of course, this seems to be tying or picking on uh, the uh, Roman Catholic religion. Uh, we seem to be hitting it pretty hard. <laughs> but um, again, to be fair, in 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 open honesty, let let's let's look at some of the things that uh, Rome practices or does, uh, and and ask the question: Is this tied at all? with this Babylonian mystery. Like one of the first questions. Uh, was Peter the first pope of the Roman Catholic Church? The Roman Catholic Church claims that Peter was the first pope. According to Catholic belief, Christ appointed Peter as the first pope, who in turn went to Rome and served in this role for 25 years. From that time, it is claimed, a succession of popes has continued to this day an integral part of Roman Catholic doctrine. The title. First of all, the title. The basis for this declaration is based on one single verse in the Bible. Matthew 16, 18. And I say unto thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now, if out of the entire Bible all you ever read was that verse, I'd come to the same conclusion. But I've warned you before, 
And I warn you once again that when you read things in the Bible, you have to take it in context. And what I mean by context is you have to read what's going on around that one verse. And two factors stand in the way of this declaration of making Peter the rock. Context and translation. First of all, in context, in the verses right before this, when Jesus has asked the disciples who people were saying he was, they tell him some say he's Elijah, some say John the Baptist, others Jeremiah or one of the other prophets. Then Jesus asks in verse 15, but whom say ye that I am? Whom say you? Who do you say I am? Upon which Peter answers, and again, Peter's all the time sticking his foot in his mouth, but occasionally he comes across a gem. And this is a gem. He answers, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And then Jesus says what he did in verse 18. Now the translation here. There are two distinct rocks spoken of in this verse. The first is the actual name Peter. Peter, which is Petros in the Greek, which means a piece of rock, a stone. Piece of rock, a stone, being you take a large boulder and you break it up, you've got little rocks. That's where they come from. Now, the second is the phrase, this rock, which is not Petros, but Petra. Petra, which means a mass of rock, a great foundation. Now, when Jesus said this, the disciples did not take it to mean he was exalting Peter to be their pope or their leader. Just two chapters later, they even asked him who was the greatest. Matthew chapter 18 and verse 1. So if Jesus had meant Peter was the rock he was referring to, there would have been no argument among them later on. Also, Peter himself refers specifically to Christ as the rock in Acts chapter 4, verses 10 through 12. Be it known unto you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom ye crucified, whom God raised from the dead, even by him doth this man stand here before you whole. This is the stone which was set at naught of you builders, which has become the head of the corner. Neither is there salvation in any other for there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. So that takes care of the title. Now what about the timeline? The timeline. According to the Catholic Encyclopedia, it wasn't until the 3rd century, which is 200 to 300 AD, that it was believed Peter was the Pope for 25 years. It's quite a bit of time later from when challenge was set forth, uh, those years being from 42 AD to 67 AD. But this also is a problem. Around 44 AD, Peter was in the council at Jerusalem. That's recorded in Acts chapter 15. Around 53 AD, Paul joined Peter in Antioch, Galatians chapter 2 verse 11. Around 58 AD, Paul wrote his letter to the Christians at Rome in which he sends greetings to 27 people by name, but does not mention Peter. You would think he would have addressed the pastor if he mentions 27 of the members, right? All right, the truth. Consideration of Peter as the first pope was not an original decree, but came later on in the time of of Calixtus, the Bishop of Rome, from 218 to 223 A.D. 
Peter was married. Matthew 8.14 tells us that Peter's wife's mother was healed of a fever. Even later, Paul mentions Peter and his wife in 1 Corinthians 9, chapter, uh, chapter 9, verse 5. Cephas was Peter's Aramaic name, John chapter 1, verse 42. Peter would not allow men to bow down to him. Acts chapter 10, 25-26. And as Peter was coming in, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter took him up, saying, Stand up, I myself also am a man. Peter did not place tradition on a level with the word of God. He actually says in 1 Peter 1, verse 18 and 19, For as much as ye know that ye were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold, <coughs> excuse me, from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. Peter was not a pope because he never wore a crown. In fact, listen to how he describes himself in 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 through 4. The elders which are among you I exhort, who am also an elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, and also a partaker of the glory that shall be revealed. Feed the flock of God which is among you, taking the oversight thereof, not by constraint, but willingly, not for filthy lucre. If you don't know what filthy lucre means, that means bribing people and gaining money out of it, using taking advantage of them. Mm. <laughs> but of a ready mind, neither as being lords over God's heritage, but being in samples to the flock, or examples. And when the chief shepherd shall appear, ye shall... Receive a crown of glory that fadeth not away. So the only time he even thinks about a crown is when Christ returns and gives it to him then. So through scripture we can see Peter never acted like a pope. He never dressed like a pope. He never spoke like a pope. He never wrote like a pope. And people did not approach him like a pope. And that's a quote straight out of uh, Edward Woodrow's, Ralph Edward Woodrow's book, Babylon Mystery Religion, on page 68 right there. <laughs> Need to fix that so I can put that before I actually quote it. The quote was, Peter never acted like a pope, never dressed like a pope, never, never spoke like a pope, neither wrote like a pope, and people did not approach him like a pope. That's straight out of the book. Okay, now what about Mary? <clears throat> um, I'll tell you what. Yeah, we might need to stop here because this gets into a little bit more. Um... Let's pick up on the subject of Mary in the next uh, episode. How about that? Okay. And ag again, um, <laughs> I've mentioned it before. Th this is all historical background. Now, I'm not just throwing accusations out there or claiming things. I'm giving you the facts. I'm giving you the evidence. And you can go look it up yourself. I mean, it's, it's as clear and as simple as it can be. Um, it's in direct violation of what the Bible says. But you wouldn't know that if your church doesn't allow you to read the Bible. And when I say the Bible, I do mean the King James Version of the Bible. Not the New King James Version. Not the NIV Version. All those are corrupt versions. And if, if this is new to you, uh, go back and look at my first podcast when I give you the history of the King James Bible and why that specific version is so critical and why it is the one that's attacked more than any others. Again, it's because 
the Babylonian system in the world does not want you to have the truth. They're fighting this thing for everything it's worth. Is that not obvious? I mean, if, if you're trying to make a stand for something, you're going to fight for it. Well, don't think Satan's going to sit back and just let things happen as they are. No, he's fighting for it too. Okay? Okay, so uh, again, thank you for joining me today. Uh, God bless you. Uh, remember, pray for me. Pray for each other. Pray for our country. Uh, pray for, again, those citizens of the Ukraine and also the citizens of Russia. And uh, hopefully you'll join me on the next podcast and we'll get through this and finally get into chapter 17 and start breaking it down. It, it, it is. It's, it's a huge chunk of history behind it because there's so much history in it. And, and I don't want to miss anything. We want to make sure you have it all. And that way you have a strong foundation of which to uh, make your own decisions on. Okay? All right. So thank you once again for listening. God bless you. And I hope you have a great day.